Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, October 2nd, 2009. This week, episode 140 comes to you from all over the country. We've got the wingman back in Coriapolis, PA, at the, at the controls, Chris Boisel. Good afternoon. Good day, Chris. We've got our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, joining us from Pittsburgh. I'm Radio Joe Hughes, and I'm out in Chicago today. Uh, today's guests are going to, oh, we're going to have uh, Mr. Glenn Feldman, of course, for our IE Connections What's News at halftime. Today's segments will include Dr. Eva King uh, from Indoor Biotechnologies. We're going to talk a little bit about asthma and allergies today. We'll have our halftime IE Connections What's News with Mr. Glenn Feldman. And then we'll go back to the second half of our interview with Dr. King. And, of course, we'll have the roundup. We'll be bringing in our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, at halftime and during the roundup. We've been adding and uh, updating things to that IAQ Radio website every week. Check it out at www.iaqradio.com. Before we get started, we've got to thank those sponsors. We're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions. Visit them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay. We are going to uh, have today's guest. Uh, well, before I do that, let's make sure everybody knows to contact the show. You've got to go to uh, iaqradio.com and go to the link that says go to the show, or you can download shows later like uh, most of our listeners do, either from the iaqradio.com site or you can get us off of iTunes. And don't forget, you can get your IICRC continuing education credits IAQ Council Renewal Credits, and now we have those ABIH Certification Maintenance Points available by emailing me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com, or you can also, of course, make requests and suggest guests, etc. The Z-Man Cliff Slotnick is not going to be in today. He's out of the, out of the uh, state today and uh, not available, but we're going to carry on without him. Today's guest is Dr. Eva King. She is the senior scientist and leader of the immunoassay team at Indoor and Biotechnologies Incorporated, a global leader in allergen detection and prevention. Dr. King has been widely published in scientific journals and is a speaker of choice at many international scientific and professional conferences, such as the Indoor Air Quality Association Conference and the American Industrial Hygiene Conference. Dr. King received her master's degree in biochemistry in Germany and her Ph.D. in the field of immunology and epidemiology from the University of Oxford in England. Good day, Dr. King. Do we have you on the line? 
Hi. Thanks. Welcome. Well, it's great to have you here. Thanks just, for having me. I, I just realized that, um, you know, I was reading the intro and, and, and that you went to Oxford. That's pretty, uh, you know, that's a pretty distinguished university over there. Uh, do you get chosen to go to Oxford or do you apply? How does that work out? Well, you apply, but then you have to go to go through through some some testing and all that, and then you know the research group that you're going to be working with has to has to agree to actually take you on. So, but you know everything get, we we have a saying in German that says nothing gets cooked as hot as it it gets eaten as as hotly as it gets cooked. So, you know, all just people. <laughs> I understand. Well, if you could tell us a little bit about what you do at Indoor Biotechnologies, I I know you're the chief. Uh, senior scientist and the leader of the immunoassay team. What what exactly does that involve? Well, InnoBiotechnologies, at, at InnoBiotechnologies, we do a bunch of different things, all related uh, around allergens. And um, the particular group, the immunoassay group that I lead, um, our primary focus is detection of allergens, particularly in, in environmental samples. So um, what we do is we, we've developed uh, technology and methods to detect allergens in environmental samples, and we also have a, um, an analysis facility. So people send us uh, samples from, from home inspections, um, dust samples, air filter cartridges, all those kind of things, and uh, we detect uh, the allergens in those samples for them. So that's, that's, that's our primary focus in this particular group. I, I know you do a little bit of training, but I believe, is it only once a year you do this big training course that's coming up next week? Yeah, uh, the, the training, the, the real training course we do once a year, and this, this year is actually the 10th year we're doing that. It's a, a course on uh, on health effects of indoor allergens and mold and endotoxin, and we always have a, uh, have a bunch of distinguished speakers from all over the world um, who are teaching on the course, and that's just one day of teaching. And then um, we have a full day of hands-on training in the lab uh, after that. We do that once a year, but we we do have we do have people uh, coming over uh, throughout the year who want who want some special training and methods or or just want want to get some extra insight. But the main training course with a with a day of of seminar-style lectures uh, and the practical training is that's that's a once a year occurrence. I see. Now, before you started at Indoor Biotechnologies, uh, what what kind of work did you do prior to that? Well, I actually, uh, in, industry-wise, I didn't do uh, terribly much before that. So you you already said that I that I uh, went to university in Oxford and in Germany before that. And uh, while I was in England, I did research on on the interaction between uh, the human immune system and intestinal parasites. Not exactly a dinner conversation, uh-huh. but it was. It's still quite interesting, and I developed assays to uh, to measure certain immune reactions in people. So that's but that was that was research I did during my uh, my PhD in Oxford, and then um, after that for a little while I worked at the um, patent department for 3M and and helped out there a little bit. But um, my main industry job so far has been has been working here with indoor biotechnologies, and it's been it's been great. And I've been here for for just over four years. Yeah, that's kind of interesting that um, you did that type of research. I, it just so happens last night on um, CNN, I was I was in a hotel here. I, I was going by CNN, and they had this, I don't know what they called it, but it was like the volunteer of the year um, kind of thing, and they had these 10 people who were the top volunteers. And one of the guys who I think he won it last year, I could be wrong, um, he was working on, parasites, worms they called it, in children in, I believe it was Haiti, and that he was going to be helping cure, uh, fix this problem for 3.2 million people in Haiti, I believe it was. Are you familiar with that? Uh, not familiar with that particular problem uh, project there, but um, intestinal parasites are a huge problem all over uh, all over the world, less so in the, in the developed world, but um, it's it's literally billions of people in the world are infected with uh, with worms, and that creates a bunch of problems. Wow, I was just fascinated. It was he was a young kid. He was probably only I don't know 26 years old, and he had been doing this for a while. And when he won this award, he got a great deal of um, recognition. And then, you know, his goal was to do 300,000 kids, and because of being on CNN and all of that, now they're going to do 3.2 million people 
in November, all in basically one shot. So I just yeah. thought I'd bring that up. <laughs> Let, let's get a little into um, the allergies and, and asthma issues. My, I was curious when I was getting ready for the show, I was thinking to myself, okay, what what were the first original things that um, the medical community identified as being allergens and, and that were people were causing people health problems? Well, that's quite a journey, actually. So um, in, I guess it was 1906 or something around uh, in, in that time, um, there was a guy called Von Piquet, and he first termed the word allergy. And uh, what that term meant was that uh, it's, it's a changed reactivity, as in an abnormal or hypersensitive reaction to something. And at the time, that was really a rare disease. And uh, there were some cases of hay fever and food intolerance described. But um, people didn't really know what was going on there. It was just, just observed that, that there was some kind of hypersensitivity uh, happening in a, in a certain amount of people. And um, it wasn't, wasn't until, until much later that, uh, that people started to figure out what actually the cause of this reaction was. So what they, um, what they originally did was um, they had, had certain extracts, like pollen extracts or, or extracts of house dust or something, where they, uh, they figured out that people were reactive to. And um, they, um, they put the extracts on people's skin and they, they, they did what we still kind of do as a skin prick test. And they noticed that um, there was a reaction in this. There was, was a localized swelling or a wheel. But um, it wasn't really till the, till, till the 1960s, uh, till um, a guy called Ishizaka, uh, who actually got the Nobel Prize for this, um, found out that there's a certain antibody, a new class of antibody called IgE, that was um, involved in, in causing these reactions. So it was, it was really not, not uh, till till the 60s that, that, that we got a, got a better idea about uh, what was going on there. So, um, and what were the initial allergens that they were looking at? Were they all pollens, or was it a combination of other things? Uh, I mean, if you don't know, I, I certainly understand it. Well, they, they were, there were first reports of, of, of allergy to, to mites in the 1920s, and there was, uh, there was a local outbreak um, of, of what they called an epidemic asthma, uh, in a in a factory that that processed grains and that turned out to be um, due to to storage mites that were uh, were living in that grain and that that caused reactions in in these workers. Um, but uh, it wasn't until the till the late 70s that actually Dr. Martin Chapman, who you had on the program I think last year sometime, he was the one who uh, who first purified the uh, the allergen from from dust mites. So that, but that wasn't until the until the late 1970s. It was also in the in the 70s that that cat allergen and dog allergen were first uh, purified. So um, it's 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 been a process and it's still it's still ongoing. We're finding we're finding new allergens all the time, and um, you know you might know that 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 people react to the general um, to to an organism. You know you know that people react to cats. But it's it's a whole different story um, making the step from yes this person is allergic to cat to figuring out what exactly on the cat it is that people react to. So so that's a that's a whole journey right there. And this is so this is all fairly recent. I mean you know I'm I, I hate to say it I was born fifty seven so I'm getting up there. Uh, and I, I guess they knew, you know, my doctors probably had some idea that these allergens, that, that people were allergic to things, but they didn't, they couldn't determine what I was allergic to until probably in the 70s. No, they, they, what, what they could tell was that people, people react, had a tendency to uh, react to house dust extract. So, you know, if you literally, you, you collected um, a, a sample of your house dust, and uh, made an extract of that and, and did a skin prick test with that, so just put a drop on your skin and scratched it, um, they could tell that, yes, people reacted to something in that house dust, but it wasn't, it wasn't till, till fairly late till uh, we were able to identify what it actually was that people were reacting to. I so see. That's, that's correct. I see. Now, what about, uh, I, I assume, as time has gone on here, we have learned more and more about what people are allergic to and I'm just curious I mean I think most of us know the standard things that people are allergic to your dust mite uh, your 
cat and maybe dog and the pollens, etc. What other types of uh, particles, or I don't know if they're gases or particles, most of these are particles, I assume, are, are you looking at now that we might not be as familiar with? Oh, there's there's very little limits to uh, to the things that people can develop allergies to. So, um, you know, there's there's food allergies. Um, the most commonly known ones are, are against uh, things like peanuts or, or shrimp, um, which are also uh, allergens that we work with here at Indoor. Um, and then there's um, there's other indoor allergens, uh, which is what we're mostly concerned with, are um, cockroach, for example, or rodents like rats and mouse. Um, they produce fairly potent allergens as well. Um, here, in terms of cockroach allergens, um, that might be something that you wouldn't really expect, but it's actually a very important and potent um, allergen in um, in the medical world. And um, one of our one one of our employees here uh, indoor, Dr. Anna Pomez, actually uh, has has described um, some of the the real protein structures of some of the cockroach allergens uh, right here. So um, there's there's a whole bunch of different um, different allergens out there, and a lot more than than you know than you commonly know. But um, that is generally a case that you know, people are people people might be mainly allergic to um, to the more common ones. But also have allergens, allergies to um, to the more obscure um, things. So, and, and there's also cross reactivities. I'm, for example, I'm, I'm personally I'm allergic to birch pollen, but um, be, because there's a whole range of, of different plants that produce a protein that is very similar to birch protein, to this birch pollen allergen. Um, what you also then you also react to other things. What type of pollen is that? Birch, birch tree. Oh, birch tree. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That was one of my questions because I've always known, you know, I have this hay fever, you know, and and in the fall, um, it can be, you know, it can be pretty rough. And is hay fever a combination of allergy, you know, allergy, allergic reaction to numerous different types of? I guess these are weed pollens of some type. Well, um, hay fever is is just a just a word for a seasonal. For a seasonal allergy that involves, you know, rhinitis uh, type re- uh, type um, reactions, and um, well, it d- depends what you're allergic to. Well, what you're allergic to defines um, when you're going to have these, in what season you're going to have this, these reactions. So, um, you know, you're not going to have if if you have your your um, your problems in in fall, then it's not going to be birch pollen, for example, or, or some other tree pollen. Um, very unlikely because um, they're um, you, you you're exposed to those in spring and not in not in fall. But um, it's always hard to you know you can you can make certain assumptions on what you're allergic to based on um, when you have the, the symptoms. But the last call really always has to be done um, by an allergist. So um, just just go in, find an allergist, and let them check out what you're allergic to. And they'll let me know exactly what it is. Now, but how many, I, I can't imagine how difficult it would be. There's got to be hundreds, well, there's, you know, thousands of different trees, thousands of different types of grass, thousands of different types of uh, weeds. How do you determine which ones to look at? Well, you've got, people generally have a pretty good idea at, at what's what's most likely to be the cause of, of the reactions and and when they test you, they have um, they they have have mixed extracts of different grasses or different tree pollens, and so they 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 they've they've got that narrowed down pretty pretty nicely. Okay, so these are typically like a mixed extract that that they will be looking at. Yeah, they, they, you know you you can you can do it either way. So you, they're they're all available separately as well. But um, I think uh, in in many cases they they use mixed extracts to just see okay. Is it grasses or is it trees or is it molds or something like that? Well, but that's question you really have to ask an allergist. <laughs> I understand. I understand. Well, let me ask you this: that you're with Indoor Bio, and I, how many different types of um, uh, tests do you do with respect to you know different types of allergens that people react to? Is it 50, 100? Uh, what 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 number are we at now? Um, we're I think at at roughly twenty, because um, the thing the thing is um, yes there's there's hundreds and hundreds of allergens out there, but um, in an indoor air quality context, you don't really need to deal with uh, with all of them. 
so there's um, there's common indoor allergens that have been you know with with as medical uh, proof that they are most likely to to cause issues. So there's um, there's 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 a fairly sh short range of of indoor allergens that have been shown to be significant in the clinical sense, and that's um, allergens of of different dust mites, um, animal dander such as cat and dog, and then rodent allergens of of um, of mouse and rat, and as well as cockroach. So that's that's really, um, and then then some mold. But um, that's that's really the main spectrum that that is worth looking at, you know, in an initial um, evaluation. And then there's, and also, you know, we have for for dust mites, for example, we know by now. I think we're at 24 known allergens that just um, just one certain type of dust mite produces. But in order to to figure out whether there is a dust mite problem, you know, you don't need to measure all 24. It's enough if you measure one or two, which are the major allergens, which are also the allergens that um, the majority of, of uh, allergic patients actually react to. So it's, it's not necessary to, to uh, measure the whole thingamajig. You know, it's, it's enough if you, if you pick the relevant ones. So even though there's 24 different things within that dust mite, mm -hmm. Uh, whatever biology that we could be allergic to, as long as we know we're allergic to dust mites, that's what counts. Yes. Okay. Okay. I think I understand. Now, I have always my understanding has always been, and maybe I'm wrong, that it's the the feces that people are allergic to. Is that true? That's or right. That, that's okay. right. The major um, allergens that dust mites produce um, are located on the fecal particles. That's that's correct. Um, yes. And that's also um, well, while you're mentioning particles. Um, that also defines how you get exposed to dust mite allergen in particular, because you know they are these, these fecal particles. They're 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 too big to stay airborne for any prolonged period of time. So um, the vast majority of dust mite allergen you're not going to find in the air, but you're going to find um, on mattresses, carpets, soft furnishings, those kind of things. And unless they're disturbed, you're not going to find a lot of it in the air because the particles settle quickly. Is that also true with the cockroach and the rodent allergens? Are they primarily from the feces, or is there, are these different? Yeah, with the cockroach, that's, and, and it's, it's fecal and, and then, um, you know, body parts. Uh, but uh, with the rodent, the rodent allergens are uh, located in, the, in urine, uh -huh. and, but they can, they can become airborne quite easily. And then uh, the allergens uh, that are most likely to be found in um, in the air in higher concentrations are, are animal allergens such as cat and dog allergens. And the reason for that is that the particles that, that these uh, allergens are, are stuck to, literally stuck to, are very small. And they, they just stay airborne for a long period of time. Um, also for cat allergen, um, one, uh, one, one characteristic of, of cat allergen is that it's incredibly sticky. So um, if you go into a house that doesn't have a cat or has never, these people never had a cat, that doesn't mean that you don't find cat allergen in that house because um, cat allergen is so sticky, it travels on people's clothes, um, it stays airborne for a long period of time. So even if you, if, if you take a cat out of a household, um, and clean up thoroughly, you're most likely still going to find cat allergen in that house for, for a long time. And I'm talking weeks and months. I got one right. Let's see if I get this one right. Now, is the cat allergen more common from the, the dander on the cat, or is it the hair? Um, my understanding is it's the, it's the dander. Yeah, well, the, the cat allergen is mainly um, produced in, in the saliva, uh -huh. and then also the uh, sebaceous glands in the skin of the cat. But um, cats lick themselves all the time, so um, they have they have the allergens lit literally all over their body, and they shed them with um, with the skin. They shed them with with the fur, and they just spread cat allergen all over the place. Interesting. My son's very allergic to cats, but it doesn't seem to have the same problem with dog. Uh, is is it the same with dog allergen? Yeah, yeah. But the um, the dog allergen is. Tends to be not quite as potent as the cat allergen, but it's 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 a similar problem, yeah. I see. I see. All right. Well, how do we, as indoor environmentalists, uh, a lot of our people do both investigation. Well, they do either one investigation or remediation. Some do both. As people who are 
doing these types of investigations? What's the best way to sample for these allergens in an indoor environment? Traditionally, the, the best way really to do that has been to collect reservoir dust, so settled dust in the household, because um, that's where, that's where all, all of the important indoor allergens accumulate. So um, if, if, if you know that people in that house have, have allergies to dust mite, I'd recommend that you include um, vacuuming the, um, the, the bedding, the mattress, carpets, soft furnishings in your investigation because that's where you're most likely going to find dust mite allergens. Um, but um, the way to do that really is um, really to, to collect settled dust. And there's a, uh, we have a, um, a collection device for that. It's called the Dust Stream Dust Collector. It's very simple, uh, low-tech device. It's a, uh, it's, it's a plastic nozzle, basically, for, that, that fits onto uh, your vacuum cleaner hose. And you insert a little, there's a little nylon filter that goes into that, um, this, this, this collection device. And then you just, um, you just vacuum the area you want to test for a little while. So and make sure that there's, that there's visible dust collected in that filter. And you pop the little filter out of the, out of the dust stream collector and just put it in a little Ziploc bag and send it into the lab. So that's really, um, that's very simple. Um, and reservoir dust is really, is really a good way to, to, uh, to get a good image of, of what's going on in that household. So, um, yeah, collect sample on, in the bedrooms, you know, bedding, furnish, uh, furniture, oh. carpets. And then if you're, if you're looking um, for, for evidence of, of cockroach or rodent allergens, it's always good to, um, to include the kitchen as well. I see. Now, do you, do you um, put these samples all together? Do you do them separate or do you do both? Um, depends on how um, how clear your answer needs to be. So if you really, obviously, we would always recommend to um, to take separate samples, so to take separate bedroom samples, for example, a bedroom sample, living room sample, kitchen sample. That would be that would be the best way to get a to get a good picture of of what rooms have what allergen levels, and that gives you gives you a better chance to. For, for remediation, right? Because um, if you if you do one collective sample that you just mix for the whole house, yeah, it gives you it gives you a general idea about what's going on in, on in the house. But um, for remediation purposes, you know, if if you see that there's a high dust mite level or there's a high cat level, you you still don't know which room that um, that allergen actually came from, or if there's a particular problem zone in the house. So uh, taking separate samples is really the way to go. So you could focus your cleaning then based on uh, the levels in different rooms. Yeah, yeah. Um, for you know, for, particularly for for in in the case of dust mites, there might be um, there might be one room where um, where, where the where the problem is is bigger than in others. So um, in certain areas of the house, it might not even be necessary to to do anything as you know, and, and remediation. In this case, I mean um, measures such as uh, mattress encasing and those kind of things. So it may not, you know, may, it may not be necessary to to spend a lot of money on mattress encasing on beds that that don't require it. So it's it it really can save you a lot of t a lot of time and money in the long in the longer term. When I get these sample results back for our indoor environmentalist and our contractors as well, what what type of units will they come in? So I got, you know, I, I send you a, a sample of uh, dust from the bedding in a home where a child's got. Uh, symptoms of an allergic mm -hmm. reaction, and let's say I've even got um, a doctor's uh, report that indicates they're allergic to dust mites. Yeah. What, how, do we, how do we express the sample results? What units are they in? Yeah, the, the units uh, that the samples come back in are in micrograms of allergen per gram of dust. Okay. And um, particularly for mites, we actually do have threshold levels um, that are scientifically uh, published. So we we don't have that for every for absolutely every allergen, but for for the most important ones, there those there's these numbers out there, and um, the these thresholds that are published are um, well the, the relevance is that you have uh, you know if if you're you have a family history of allergy for example right, mm -hmm. um, and so you have you have a certain propensity to become allergic in your lifetime. Then, um, if you are um, exposed to a certain level of allergen, 
um, over a period of time, then you have a certain likelihood of developing an allergy to that. Does that make any sense? Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, if, you're, if, if you have a likelihood of becoming allergic at all, then um, there's a level of mite allergen that you're exposed to in your bed that makes it more or less likely that you develop an allergy uh, against mites. And there's and, and those numbers we have. So if you have, for, for the mite group 2 allergens, if um, our report comes back and there's a level of, of below 0 0.3 uh, micrograms per gram of dust of mite allergen in there, there's, not, there's really no evidence to worry about. Um, however, if, if, the, um, if the level we measure is between 2 and 10 or more, then um, you should really start thinking about uh, maybe encasing that mattress doing something about it. So so there's there's be, really levels levels there, and then there these thresholds are also uh, written on the on the lab report, uh, so you can can check that out. But 0.3 micrograms per gram, mm -hmm. that's pretty much uh, a low level, essentially. Or that's a very, yes, that's, a, a that's a low level, and where where you really don't have much of a risk at all to develop uh, a sensitization to to dust mite allergens. But if if someone's already sensitized, like, and if if this is something for someone else to answer, let me know. If they're already sensitized, would they possibly react at that low of a level? Um, if they're highly allergic, they might. Um, that's that's a you know that's really a personal thing. If some people are more sensitive, who are allergic to something, they're more or less sensitive to it. So um, the, um, the threshold that a person has to actually have an allergic reaction is is really individually different. So, um, yeah, if, if somebody is highly, highly allergic uh, to dust mites um, and you measure, you measure a level of dust mite allergen in your bed, then you should do something about it, really, because, um, you know, if, if, particularly if you have evidence that that person has, has problems when, when, when they're uh, in that bed. I'm going to have some more questions on that after we take our break. Here. Right. We, we, we've got our halftime, and uh, we've got Dr. Eva King on the line here. We're talking asthma and allergy on IAQ Radio today. But it's halftime, and it's time for our IE Connections What's News segment. Glenn Feldman, do we have you on the line? I'm on the line, Joe. How are you today? I'm very good, thanks, Glenn. How are you? Great, great show. Uh, Ava King is a wonderful guest. I love it. I love it. What's news, Mr. Feldman? Uh, we've got to start off like uh, we'll probably start off uh, for the rest of the winter. We're going to start off talking about H1N1, but this past uh, the past four weeks have been have been dramatic. Four weeks ago, there were six states reporting widespread influenza outbreaks. Three weeks ago, it was 11 states. Two weeks ago, it was 23 states. This week, 26 states. Every state pretty much south of the Mason-Dixon line, if you imagine the line between Maryland and Pennsylvania, if you go west all the way to northern California, every single state in that southern half of the country has widespread, which is the, the, the largest category, widespread influenza, not just H1N1, because they're not really tracking which kind anymore. But when you compare that to previous years, it's astounding. You can go to the cdc.gov website and you can pull up flu statistics by week going back for, for decades. And this is, is nearly unprecedented how quickly this is spreading. And uh, like I say, here we are at uh, uh, 26 states. They're not testing for H1N1 on a regular basis, but of those who have been tested uh, right now in, in the last week, 60% of those tested uh, were confirmed to have the 2009 H1N1. So we know what's going around. And, of course, 30,000 people die every year from the flu, just from the seasonal flu. This year they're saying it could be as high as 90,000 who will die in this country because of the flu. And uh, I know I saw a sad story on the news just two nights ago, a, a teenager from uh, my hometown uh, who uh, had, had asthma and allergies 
and got H1N1, and, and she uh, she succumbed to it. She died. And I, I, I bring it up uh, because it's probably the biggest IAQ news story we got, but also because uh, they're showing, a lot of evidence is showing that those who have allergies and asthma and other respiratory illnesses are the most likely to die after uh, getting H1N1 and, and that, because it'll lead to bacterial infections. And I'm hoping that maybe you'll ask Ava to talk on that subject when we come back from the break. We can do that. I, that's not good news for me. <laughs> not good news for a lot of people. Glenn, uh, well, let me ask you real quick, based on your looking at this, is that common that the flu starts south of the Mason-Dixon and then works its way north, or is that unusual? Um, no, it's 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 it, it, it's interesting. It's it, it starts somewhere and then it spreads out from that area. So, for instance, when you look at the statistics from six weeks ago, uh, four weeks ago, the six states that had it were basically Florida and, and and all of its neighboring states in the southeast. And it and it literally you can watch it week by week as it spreads across the country. Hmm. So it, it just depends on where I guess the the biggest outbreak starts, and then it and then they just it just mobilizes from there. What else do we have this week? Well, related to that, a new study has come out bet- uh, from ASHRAE, the American Society of Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers. Uh, it's called Airborne Infectious Disease Physician Document, and what it is is it's a study that examines the links between HVAC systems and disease transmission. It's a, it's a really interesting report, and uh, w- what I got out of it and what most people get out of it is that uh, most of the, con- uh, the, the, the viruses that are being carried around are in droplets that are too large to make it through an HVAC system, and so that the main form of transmission, especially when we're talking about something like uh, the flu, is not going to come through your air conditioning system. It's going to come from uh, droplets that you're going to... Uh, somehow come in contact with within the room. That's actually the cover story or the page one story of our October edition of IE Connections, which uh, all the news I'm talking about today you can read about at ieconnections.com. So look out for that new ASHRAE study. Meanwhile, um, some other big news in the world of indoor air quality. So often we overlook radon. Uh, it's, it's, it's the second leading cause of cancer deaths, uh, and, and it's a, it's a significant health, public health problem. Well, the World Health Organization has substantially lowered its estimate of how much radon can be permitted in homes without causing adverse health effects. Its new handbook is called uh, Handbook on Indoor Radon, and it came out September 22nd. What's interesting here is uh, the World Health Organization is now recommending a threshold of action of 2.7 picoliters, or picoliters, I'm probably saying that wrong, Per liter. I think it's pico, but that's cool. Pico per liter. Thank you. It, who recommends 2.7 pico per liter? Um, the current EPA recommended level is four, and that's been in place for 40 years. According to Bill Angel, the president of the American Association of Radon Scientists and Technologists, the WHO recommendations uh, more strongly emphasize the importance of radon testing by all homeowners and home buyers and reduction of high concentrations of the radioactive gas. So if you're an IAQ professional, you need to keep up on that, too. Last thing I wanted to talk about today was uh, I wanted to alert people to an event that's happening November 5th and 6th in Tampa, Florida. It's the first uh, uh, symposium on Chinese drywall, or as it's now more commonly being referred to as corrosive drywall. I think that's the politically correct way of calling it. Uh, corrosive drywall. But this is the first one that's being sponsored, uh, to my knowledge, by an actual government entity. This is being sponsored by the Florida Department of Health uh, in conjunction with the University of South Florida College of Public Health and the University of Florida Hinckley Center for uh, Solid and Hazardous Waste Management. Uh, the URL for, for this uh, drywall symposium is too long to give on a radio show, but if you check out your October edition of IE Connections at ieconnections.com, uh, you can find that on page four, information about that symposium. And again, that's taking place November 5th to 6th in Tampa, Florida. All right. That's Thank news you. for today, Joe. Thank you, Glenn. Will you be able to join us for the roundup? Love to. Great. We'll bring you back then. Let's go and uh, let's thank our sponsors before we bring Dr. Dieter on. We are delighted to have as our first association sponsor, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. You can visit them at 
iaqa.org. We also want to thank our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Of course, Pro Restore products for cleaning, odor, removal, and antimicrobial products, remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. And, of course, we want to make sure we thank our primary sponsors again, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com, I might add, now online, Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com, and Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. All right, let's uh, bring Dr. Dieter on here. Hello, Dieter. Well, I have about, uh, do we have another two hours? <laughs> well, not not quite, but I'm sure you've got a comment if not a uh, question. One, one of the, the, the first ones is these threshold limits for allergens in, in houses. Are they published? Are they available somewhere? Okay. Uh, they were mentioned that we have, for some agents, we have threshold limits. I don't want to say a threshold limit value somebody else. They're guidelines, really. They're, they're, they're guidelines, but yes, well, they're, of course they're, they're guidelines, right? Yeah, they're they're published. There's a um, there's a range of of um, scientific papers um, that have been published about that, and particularly the dust mite uh, levels. They were established at an international workshop on indoor allergens in '97, if I'm not entirely mistaken. But yes, there's they're published. Can we maybe get a link to that or something? Do you yeah, think? Yep. I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll send you the info. Okay, great. And I'll put it up on our uh, resources page at IAQ Radio. Mm-hmm. Okay, Dieter? Um, <clears throat> yeah, Eva, you talked about um, uh, some of the samplings, and I, everybody runs into this. Yeah. So I think I have a problem in my house. Can you come over and help me? Yeah. And um, I don't know how many charcoal samples I have taken. And then, you know, I get a couple of uh, micrograms or nanograms <laughs> back of uh, chemicals that I've never even heard of. May have come, may have come from my aftershave lotion or something like that. <laughs> uh, but apparently, from what you said, you, you are more looking at the particulate matter rather than the gaseous, you know, let's say VOCs. Yes, we're not, we're not measuring VOCs. And- the allergens, they're all, they're all located on particles of a certain size. And can so, I, mm-hmm. yes. I, I love, I personally loved uh, Teflon uh, uh, filters, but a lot of people, I mean, there are a bunch of filters out there. Uh, can I just catch them on a, on a uh, yeah, with a pump on a, on a, in a cartridge with a filter? Is that a good way of doing it? I guess you could. Um, the best way to to collect really collect reservoir dust samples is really by by using these these dust stream collectors um, that they really have just have a nylon filter in them just to collect the the dust itself. Um, okay, nylon uh, nylon filter is fine with me uh, too. No problem. And yeah, I the, guess... the, the you know the filter material for this is really not not relevant. It's just. You need to collect reservoir dust, and what the material you collected on is really is, is really not part of the uh, part of the issue. Right, and so, it depends on the laboratory which is analyzing it. Um, for allergens, really not, because um, what what we do, you know, when when we get when we get those samples in, um, be it uh, air filter cartridges or reservoir dust samples, what we do is we make an extract of uh, the sample we get in. Okay. So if we you know, if we if we get uh, get one of those dust stream filters in um, that have has a has a, um, a larger amount of dust in it, we weigh out um, up to 100 milligrams of dust, and okay. we extract that per weight. All right. In extraction buffer. So um, and then all analyses are done with that extract. So um, and, and and you know if we have an have an air filter cartridge that ha- doesn't have any visible dust on it. 
um, the whole cartridge, the whole filter gets extracted, and okay. then you, you the you know the the result you get in the end. Then obviously we can't uh, we can't back calculate for uh, to um, microgram per gram of dust because sure. you know there was no way of measuring measuring the amount of dust that was on there if we didn't have anything to weigh out. But then um, then you you get a result per filter, and if you know how much how much air you've you've pumped through that filter, you know. You know, um, you know that. Sure, certainly, I understand. Mm -hmm. Have you have you talked about the likelihood of who could be uh, uh, um, susceptible? Who is the atopic person? Uh, did you find any common denominators? I looked at that years ago. I worked for a little company called the Bayer Chemical Corporation, which of course is right <laughs> across Cologne in Leverkusen. <laughs> And we were looking at atopic people for certain sensitization and uh, other problems. Uh, you, know, you know Bayer is making thousands of chemicals. Yeah. We never could find a common denominator. Said, yeah. hey, this one is probably going to get it, and this one is probably not going to get it. No, you're, uh, you, you really can't. There is a, you know, if, if people have a family history of allergies, um, they're more likely to have it. But... Um, it's a similar problem with the allergens themselves. You know, we have, we still, up to this day, we do not know what what it is that makes an allergen an allergen. Okay, so I, I'm aware. There, yes. There, there's, um, you know, there's, um, we find allergens um, in all protein classes. We can't say that, okay, um, a protein that has a certain function is likely to be an allergen. That doesn't work. So there's really, there's really no common denominator even there. Um, um, that, Even with that, active chemical groups hanging on it, uh, or something like that. No, no. Uh, and yeah. all the allergens, they they tend to be very complex um, protein molecules. Oh, so that it's it's um no, it's, there's there there's a bunch of people worldwide who are, who are working on exactly that problem, including um including Dr. Pomeas here uh, here at Indoor, and um up to this point, we have not been able to find a common denominator there that tells us anything about that. All right. Uh, just a couple of other quick comments over mm -hmm. there. Go for it, Peter. New radon, by the way. <laughs> a new radon study suggests 2.7. I, I always like decimal places. It's wonderful, you know. And it's, by the way, microcuries per liter of air in, uh, in honor of Mr. and Mrs. Curie. Anyway, 2.7. Uh, EPA United States says 4. To me, there is not a significant difference. I'm looking right now at the national ambient air quality standards for the United States, and until nine, uh, from 1970, 1997, the ozone standard was 0 .08, and it was lowered to 0 .075. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that is not <laughs> Uh, it is, I mean, it is ridiculous, as a matter of fact. They should look at the dose-response curve and see what that really means. And another interesting thing for indoor air things, and I just mentioned that in passing, EPA has sent out, and probably um, a couple of other people know about that, like Glenn, EPA has sent out uh, the letter that Everybody who is basically exposed, works with, or could be in contact with lead or lead paint has to be certified uh, by a certain date, which is not too far away. And that goes nationwide. Yeah. And um, it, it's probably on the EPA uh, uh, webpage for that's, sure. That's coming up in April, and we will have a couple shows on that before then, Dieter. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah it, it seems to be significant. And if anybody, if anybody wants also to look at uh, allergens, they can go to the website of the aaai.org. So that's four A's, one I, and they talk about uh, uh, allergies and allergens and, and so on. Uh, including mold and pollen uh, uh, um, levels all over the country. And here is the one, Eva, the one question. When I uh, lived in Germany and in France, that 50 years ago, 
I did not know what the word asthma meant, and I didn't know anybody with allergies. Yeah. Now we have, uh, in the United States, I've seen the latest statistics, um, uh, people with allergies, are, it's over 50%. Yeah, it's... it's, uh, it's, it's cannot under- Where does that come from? What is this? I have my own theories, but I better shut up. <laughs> well, there's a bunch of theories, and and you're right. And over the last few decades, there's been a progressive increase in the prevalence, unbelievable, and also the uh, the morbidity, surprisingly, uh, more, uh, the mortality in asthma, um, which is re- particularly the mortality aspect. I think is is very surprising that with actually the number of people who who die from asthma-related causes have actually increased. So there's now approximately uh, 10% of U.S. children who have asthma. And um, I, I thought it was even higher than that. Yeah, and that's just the children. You know, that's that's okay. just, just the children in the U.S. Um, and um, there's there's a, n- a number of theories out there as to where this um, this this increase in allergies has, has come from. And uh, one of the theories that you 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 may have heard about is it's called the hygiene hypothesis, and uh, which basically deals, or to put it to put it bluntly, is um, now children in the industrialized countries uh, grow up a lot cleaner. <laughs> They're not exposed to, um, to to all these pathogens that that people used to be exposed um, to during early childhood. And I was. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> I grew up on a farm. <laughs> so, but um, so the the hypothesis was that now, um, you know, there is, people's immune system is not trained as as uh, stringently in early childhood anymore because you know you're not exposed to all these to all these pathogens and all that dirt anymore so that was one hypothesis and I it's think still you out are there. on the right track it's still because out there but it's not the it's it's not the only thing it's um it accounts well, for, for a certain amount for a certain amount of, of cases that is that is is probably um part of the cause but there's there's only also other things you know think Think of this: this increase in asthma has has also um, um, happened. You know, pe- people are people are spending about ninety percent of of time indoors nowadays. That wasn't really the case either uh, years ago, right? Because I, I certainly I, I certainly didn't spend ninety percent of my time indoors as a kid. So there's lifestyle changes um, that happened as well over the last couple of decades, and uh, you know, towards sedentary living, and we live in warm houses, have lots of furnishings, low ventilation, and then uh, the indoor pollutants are, uh, m- many indoor pollutants are like two to five times higher indoors than outside. So, you know, we're, we we live differently, we move uh, we move less. There's been associations between um, between allergies and asthma with uh, with obesity levels, which have increased as well. Hmm. So there's a, there's, a, there's a whole range of, of potential causes that probably all contribute to the increase in some uh, in, in, yeah. to some level. But you know, there's there's really as to the you know why why is this all happening? Um, there's not there's not a single cause that we can say, hey, this is this is it. You know, it's 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 probably multifactorial. Um, there's a bunch of things that play into it. Right, absolutely, and in fact, I, I I read about a study which was done in England, and you know, for obvious reasons, in England you can do pretty good uh, 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 epidemiological studies because they have the data for. I don't even want to say why, because some people would throw up. <laughs> and um, we don't want that. <laughs> they know. They know. Uh, there are a heck of a lot of more records over there than over here, and yeah. they found out that kids who didn't get all the vaccinations, that, yeah, multiple vaccinations uh, had uh, fewer problems with allergies and asthma than those who got uh, injected, you know, every other day. I never got vaccinated in my whole life. (laughs) I'm doing fine, and I grew up in dirt, you believe it. Are Uh, Are you familiar with that? Uh, that study, the vaccination or? part, not, and you know, I'm always, I'm, I'd always be careful with the, with recommending to people not to get vaccinated because, you know, I'd, um, even if that was the case, I'd rather have an allergy than die of diphtheria. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know. Great <laughs> there's, point. There's, hey, let me, uh, and there's pros and cons. Human, to the human body has made wonderful, wonderful tailor-made antibodies for something like twenty thousand years. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. I don't want to get rid of penicillin and ampicillin, 
But I think we got to watch once in a while what we are doing. We have these plastics around you. I grew up with glass, wood, and brick. That was it. There were no plastics where I lived. Not onion. I remember Bakelite was the first plastic I ever saw. <laughs> I couldn't believe it that somebody could make it. Was by the way, it was made by Bayer. I think. Let's uh, let's bring. We're going to just bring Glenn Feldman back in. We're going to go back around the horn because we're we're running low on time. This has been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed the conversation. Hey. I think it's educational. So, Glenn, you had a question for Doctor King. Well, yeah, I, 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 I don't know exactly how to phrase the question. I, I guess maybe the question is why. Why is it that people who have uh, asthma and allergies <laughs> have a higher uh, 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 death rate from uh, influenza than those who don't? Well, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor. I have to have to shoot that up front. But um, you know, if if you have asthma, you have uh, your airways are inflamed. So you have a you have a chronic inflammation of your airways, and um, which makes it more likely for for pathogens to get in. You know you you might you might be more susceptible to infection in the first place, but then if you get infected, um, this this airway inflammation just gets ex- exacerbated, and um, that is something you really don't want to happen if you have asthma because um, if your airways swell up more and produce more mucus and that gets above the level that, that your normal drugs can deal with, then um, you really have serious problems breathing. So I, I, would, I would think that, that that's where that comes from because infections just, just exacerbate uh, asthma. Well, you know, it, 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 it's interesting because we had a conversation, I think, two weeks ago on the show uh, about whether or not we would personally get immunized for H1N1. And mm-hmm. uh, Dieter and Cliff and I were all a little hesitant about the idea, but I think it's very important for uh, people who have asthma and allergies and or whose children do that, um, like you say, I'd, I'd rather uh, uh, get a, an allergic reaction than diphtheria, so to speak. So exactly. um, <laughs> something to think about. Is, but let me, uh, I want to follow up on this asthma thing because uh, two weeks ago when we had Mac Pierce on, I had <clears throat> Asked him, and actually, I don't know if it was during the show or before the show, it doesn't really matter, about asthma triggers, because I had been uh, to an energy rating course where they were depressurizing homes, and, um, you know, I I didn't measure it, but I was pretty certain they were pulling a bunch of uh, allergens and, and what I called asthma triggers into the home, and he kind of indicated that he felt that there was some controversy about the term asthma triggers, and, and maybe it's because, uh, as Dieter has told us many times before, Dr. Wild, that even cold air can be an asthma trigger. Is that, Do you have any comment on that, Dr. King? Is that is an asthma trigger or something that's pretty well established within the literature, or is it somewhat controversial? Well, as I can repeat, I'm not a medical doctor, but, um, you know, Lots of asthma is originally caused by um, aller- by allergies, but uh, that's not the only kind of asthma you can have. So there's there's not just allergic asthma, but also other other kinds. And then there's a there's a difference between things that cause you to 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 have asthma in the first place, and then things that one, when you have asthma and your airways are inflamed, that then trigger trigger an attack. So. Um, you know, if you're if if you have allergic asthma and your your airways are are irritated anyway, then um, being exposed to ozone or smoke or pollution and diesel particles or something or an infection um, is is likely to trigger um, a, an attack. So I guess there's a there's a difference between things that that cause you to have the disease of asthma in the first place and things that once you have it um, trigger attacks. Okay. Uh, Dieter, did you have anything you wanted to finish up with here? Well, not 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 really. We uh, I, I made a couple of notes and we talked about allergens and 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 a bunch of other things. So no, interest. I think it's an interesting uh, 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 remark uh, that Eva made over there with the cat. And that said, actually, the allergen comes from the saliva, not the hair itself. And, yeah, cats are continuously licking themselves. Yeah. I just inherited a cat. I haven't seen the thing. The poor thing is hiding in my basement. 
probably licking itself. But um, I'm one, I'm one of those fortunate pe- uh, people. Nothing nothing hurts me, and I don't know whether there is anything specific or interesting about a blood sample or whatever, or DNA or whatever is in my body that I don't get colds and the flu. You're just a sturdy Not- guy. I get a little bit older, uh, probably, yes. uh, I think that is an interesting thing with that cat, that people say it's the hair, we have to vacuum clean, we have to vacuum clean, and it may be already in the air. In fact, if you pick it up with a vacuum cleaner, you distribute it in the whole room. (laughs) Yeah, if you, you know, with a a HEPA, good HEPA. You don't have a HEPA vacuum. Who has has a vacuum filter? I have one. (laughs) I have one. But Joe Blow around the corner doesn't have one. They don't know what a, a HEPA filter is. They said, I put a new bag in here, and now I'm vacuum cleaning, and I'm doing a good job. No, he is not. All right. Well, uh, let me uh, finish. The, I, I want to wrap things up the best I can. And, and Dr. King, before we do that, I want to make sure that there's uh, – is there anything you'd like to add that we didn't go over, and then I have one other thing I want to at least mention, uh, but let's first see if you have anything you'd like to add. Um, not really, really. Um, you know, we, we, in case any of you guys is interested um, in, in learning more about health effects of endoallergens, we have this, we have this course starts on Tuesday, it's extremely short notice, obviously, but um, uh, this, there's, you know, I guess, I guess there would still be a couple of seats available if anybody was interested. We have um, we have a really nice uh, crew of people there um, giving lectures this time. We have uh, Jacqueline Pongertich. Um Dr. Pongertich is from Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago. She's going to be talking about allergens as a risk factor for asthma in the cities. We have Dr. Fipitanikul from Harvard Medical School talking about allergens uh, in the homes and uh, schools and workplace. We've got an international uh, lecture, Denis Chapin. From uh, from from Marseille in France, um, talking about the the international perspective and environmental home inspections in Europe, and there's Dr. Chapman and me talking about about uh, exposure assessments, and we have uh, Donald Weeks. You you probably you might know him uh, from Inner Air Environment uh, in Ottawa, and he's talking about mold inspections and remediation. And uh, a lady from the NIHS, Michelle Seaver, is talking about uh, initiatives from the NIHS on, on those kind of things. And then um, Dr. Pomey is talking about allergen structure and function. So it should be should be a good day, and that's that's a whole day of lectures. And then we have a uh, full day of hands-on training in the lab um, where people can learn how to run analyses for allergens uh, themselves. Sounds great. So should I be, wish should be fun. Terrific. Is that course given every year? Yes. Yes, we try to do that every year. And okay, this is the, this is the tenth year notice. we do that. I have a bunch of other things to do, but I would like to come down and just have fun doing that. That'd be wonderful. We'd we'd love having you. Now let me uh, let me. Yeah, do we get the information? I'll get. I got it on the. It's on the invitation, Dieter. It's on the invitation. Okay. Yeah, it's Thank on you. The invitation. Let me uh, let me just finish up if we could. We didn't get a chance to talk much about um, the analysis methods, and and maybe what I could do is have you come back and talk a little bit more about that down the road. Um, I know you're working on some pretty interesting uh, newer ways of of doing analysis, and maybe you could just quickly mention for us um, yeah. how that's coming. Yeah, on. that's um, we, that's that's not even coming along anymore. It's 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 out there. It's working very nicely. We've developed um, some new technology over the last couple of years that um, allows us to measure all the important uh, allergens in a single test. So, so far, you know, if you send us a sample, we measure, uh, you want to know levels of 10 allergens. We have to run 10 separate tests. We don't need to do that anymore. We've, we've developed this multiplex array for inner allergens or a short Maria, and um, that allows us to measure all the allergens uh, in a single test. And obviously, that saves a lot of time and and uh, also brings the price down for for the customer. Um, but it's also a lot more sensitive uh, than than the previously used uh, ELISA method. And uh, that's that's been very useful for a lot of applications, particularly in the occupational health field, um, where they were uh, looking at, at at airborne exposures. Because um, traditionally, it's been been difficult to measure airborne exposures. Just because you couldn't you couldn't weigh out dust or anything, you know, you had the you, the levels uh, you had 
to have on those filters had to be very high um, in order to be measurable. But, but with the Maria, we we don't have that problem anymore. So so it's been it's been tremendously successful already, and the technology is already used by by uh, you know, CDC um, several academic studies and also um, some some of the colleagues in the uh, indoor air quality field. So it's been been tremendously successful, and we're very excited. And how are those sample results reported? The same way? Same way. Same way. Yeah. It's just um, that we now can measure all the things together, and we can measure more. I see. I see. Well, listen, I really want—I want to say thank you so much. It's been an, another enjoyable opportunity to talk to you a little bit, but this time with a bunch of our friends listening in. And uh, I want to thank Dr. Eva King for joining us this week on IAQ Radio. Also want to uh, make sure we let our listeners know next week we've got Wayne A. Baker, T-E-N-C-I-H, also one of the IAQA vice presidents. He will be our guest. We're going to talk about the World Health Organization dampness and mold report. Uh, before we go, I also want to make sure I thank our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, for joining us, the wingman, Chris Boisel, for holding things together back in the studio, Glenn Feldman for helping us out with IA Connections with News and the Roundup, but most importantly, thanks to all of you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.